Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Ankle Surgery Update, Science Guiding Treatment. Plantar fasciitis is a common problem encountered not only by foot and ankle surgeons, but by almost every orthopedic surgeon. And at least for us, there are once in a while patients who do not seem to benefit too much from our treatment algorithm. Therefore, we're especially excited to have Mr. Zaki Arshad and Mr. Manesh Bhatia with us. They just recently published a systematic review in Foot and Ankle International entitled Gastrocnemius Release and Management of Chronic Plantar Fasciitis. Welcome to our show. Mr. Zaki Arshad is a recent medical graduate from the University of Cambridge, currently practicing at the University Hospital of Leicester in the UK. He holds a visiting researcher position at the University of Cambridge and has published almost 20 articles on various orthopedic topics. Furthermore, we're happy to have Mr. Manesha Bahita with us. He's a consultant full and ankle surgeon at the University Hospital Leicester. He has completed a full and ankle surgery fellowship at the Edinburgh's Hospital, Cambridge, and is a member of the Scientific Committee of the European Foot and Ankle Society and the Educational Committee of the British Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society. We are really honored to have the two of us with us. Mr. Ashat, may be so kind and just briefly give us an overview over your recent systematic review on gastroc release and the management of chronic plantar fasciitis. Of course. So good evening, both. And thank you very much for your kind introduction. I think I can speak for both Manish and I in saying that we were honored to be invited to speak on your podcast today. And we are excited to discuss our research with you. This podcast is a really great way to promote and disseminate the latest research in foot and ankle surgery. And we thank you for the effort you have put into this idea. So on to our study. As you say, plantar fasciitis is an incredibly common condition. Research shows that about 1 million people receive treatment with the condition every year in the United States, with one in 10 adults affected at some point in their lifetime. So this obviously really emphasizes the need for a robust and evidence-based treatment algorithm. The evidence shows that conservative or let's say non-operative treatment, such as steroid injections and physiotherapy works in approximately 90% of cases. Now, in terms of operative management, gastrocnemius recession is really a new emerging option. There's obviously a close anatomical and functional relationship between the plantar fascia, Achilles tendon, and gastrocnemius muscle. And research suggests that gastroc tightness increases tension not only on the Achilles tendon, but also on the plantar fascia and the calcaneal tuberosity. One study even finds that there's a significant correlation between gastrocnemius tightness and heel pain severity in plantar fasciitis. So we thought it therefore logically follows that gastrocnemius release may aid in the management of plantar fasciitis. And our systematic review aimed to assess this via reviewing the whole breadth of the literature. So a bit about the methods. So for this review, we obviously followed PRISMA guidelines. We performed a systematic search in six databases to ensure we found all potentially relevant articles. Two reviewers independently performed study screening and selection according to the criteria established before the review was started. Comparative original research studies with a level of evidence three or higher assessing the results of gastrocnemius recession in patients with chronic plantar fasciitis were included. No restriction on date of publication was used. However, studies describing only gastrocnemius recession alone were included without concomitant procedures. Once we completed all the screening, a total of 285 studies were identified via database searching. Of these, six studies evaluating 118 patients were included in the final systematic review. Now, this included two randomized control trials, 
and four non-randomized comparative studies. All patients in the review received various non-operative treatments before undergoing gastrocnemius recession. And these non-operative treatments happened for a period of between eight weeks and 14 months, depending on the specific study. So now coming on to the results, all of the included studies reported significant improvements in various patient-reported outcome measures. This includes SF36, so that's short form 36, health survey, AOFAS scores, VAS pain scores, and visa A scores as well. When you look at those studies comparing results of gastrocnemius recession with other options like plantar fasciotomy and conservative stretching techniques, gastrocnemius recession consistently had higher postoperative patient-reported outcome measure scores. Furthermore, uh, there were a total of five studies uh, involving 106 feet which reported complications of the procedure, and these had an overall complication rate of about just under 10%, 8.5% specifically, with the most common uh, complication just being minor pain or swelling, which resolved within a year. And there were only two cases of sural nerve damage as well, which is obviously a favorable outcome. Finally, good results were also reported with regards to other important outcomes, such as range of motion, return to sports, and gastrocnemian strength testing. So over, overall, based on the results of our systematic review, we would say that the current evidence demonstrates that gastrocnemius recession is effective in the management of plantar fasciitis, specifically in patients who have the underlying gastrocnemius contracture and do not respond to conservative treatment. Thank you so much for this very nice overview of your study. To our belief, the systematic reviews are a super important tool to get a broader overview of the studies available. Nevertheless, their limitation often is due to the heterogeneity of the studies included. So the first point I'm interested in is what was the indication for the procedure for the gastroc release was the Silvershall test. Maybe we could quickly explain the Silvershall test to our listeners, Sebastian. Maybe you could uh, explain it quickly. The Silvershall test tries to assess whether there is any gastroc tightness. As you all know, the gastroc originates from proximal to the knee. And what you do is you have the knee fully extended and you assess the dorsal uh, range of motion of the ankle. So you assess the degree of dorsal range of motion. And after that, you flex the knee. So initially, when you have the knee extended, you have the full length of the gastroc. When you flex the knee and you reassess the dorsal range of motion of your ankle, you have the gastroc relaxed. And if you look at the literature, roughly 10 degree difference is what we would consider the upper limit of normal. Anything above that would be judged as a gastroc tightness. So the Silvershall test tries to help us to identify the reason for a limitation in dorsiflexion. Is the dorsiflexion limited to a gastroc tightness or maybe some other cause, some intraarticular cause? So one would expect that if the gastrocnemius tightness is the cause, then the gastrocnemius recession would be more helpful. Could you elaborate on this? Was the indication a side difference in dorsiflexion or a positive Silvershall test or anything like this? Yep, so I'll take that one. So, yep, very good question, Hans. So you are absolutely correct in saying that the indication for performing the gastrocnemius recession, pretty much all of the studies was a positive silver scroll test. Now, as Sebastian has eloquently described, obviously, that is the most common test used to assess gastrocnemius contracture. However, there's a lot of debate in the literature 
regarding the best way to perform this and what constitutes a positive test. And amongst the, the included studies, whilst they all did use the silver skull test, they had slightly different limitations in what they defined as a positive test. Now, this, of course, is a crucial issue because, as you said, our results suggest that the procedure is effective in patients with a gastrocnemius contracture. So the question of how do we assess the gastrocnemius contracture is obviously very important. Now, research shows that the test has quite a low both inter- and intra-rate reliability, which means it is perhaps not the most accurate or reliable method to assess contracture. One interesting paper, in fact, that we came across during our literature review was one by Marius Moland, and he tested basically a new device which essentially performs an almost automated version of the silver skull test. Now, this device basically uses a foot plate with an adjustable heel cap, which controls movement of the foot, and the whole setup was connected to a goniometer to measure the degree of ankle movement. Now, using this new device, the authors found a much higher inter- and intra-rater reliability of above 0.85, which we, were, which we would consider in the good to excellent range, and much higher than that's, than that's been reported for the silver skull test. I think that is, that is a great point, Saki, you make there. Assessing the silver skull test isn't, isn't that easy, uh, especially if you're on your own. I think it's close to impossible. Hans and me also did a study on the silver score test on how it should be assessed. Actually, we initially thought we would try to define cutoff values of dorsal dorsiflexion of the ankle in healthy individuals, and we desperately failed to do so because the, the difference was just too great. Um, and what we found is that if you have, and if, especially if you're on your own, if you have the patient perform the exercise, so if you have them do a lunch test, that makes it a lot easier to do the measurement. But... For the systematic reviews, as a second question, maybe, if I got it right, the studies you included, there are various ways to do a gas drop release, from my understanding, different locations from proximal to distal, Estria, Bauman, and, and then you could do them endoscopically or you could do them open. And if I got it right, the studies you included were rather heterogeneous uh, with respect to what procedure was used. Did you manage to somewhat group them or find whatever could be the most useful approach with respect either to the effect on the outcome or to complication rates? So I can come in here. Thank you very much for the kind invitation. And Zaki has put in Uh, beautifully as what our aims were and what we have done. In terms of different levels, as, as you have said, yes, there are different levels and they have their pros and cons. So the two most common methods to release the gastroc are proximal medial gastronomous release or the distal one, the most common is strayers. The advantage of strayers is that it's much more powerful tool and you get better release of the gastronomies by doing that. But the disadvantages are that, number one, there's a high risk of sural nerve injury with strayers. And secondly, it can weaken the calf muscles, gastronomies in particular. So proximal medial gastronomies release, it's supposed to be much safer. That's my preferred approach anyway. The complication rate is much low. The medial head of gastronomies is set to control about 70% of the power. So by just releasing the gastronomious medial head, you can have really good correction, what you need. And in my experience, I go for the proximal medial gastronomious release as the risk of nerve injury is less and you get what you need in a safe way. 
So, yeah, the location is very interesting aspect, I believe. I do. We just had our German meeting for orthopedic surgeons and they presented a study in children with neurogenic spasm and the neurogenic equinus. And they showed that depending on the location where you perform the lengthening, you will end up with a different strength one year after the procedure. So first question maybe would be, did you, uh, were you able in these six studies only to identify differences in strength depending on the location where the procedure was performed first? And second, actually, I was surprised that the studies reported an increase in strength because one would expect that by lengthening, they would experience a decrease of strength. How would you explain this? I will come in first and may, maybe then Zaki can, can add on. You're absolutely right. We This is the observation that all the studies reported better strength of gastronemius. A bit surprising, but it could be that, that obviously once the calf pressure is reduced, the pain has improved and then people are able to do more strengthening exercises than the strength when measured at six months or 12 months improves. Now, we were not able to see whether the strength was better with the proximal as compared to distal because that's what we would expect. So based on our paper, we can't say that. All we can say that strength improved and that is perhaps due to improvement in the pain and function of these patients. Yeah, so exactly, Manish. I think I 100% agree with everything you've just said. So in terms of, like it's been mentioned, systematic reviews like this obviously have a great degree of heterogeneity within them, not only in the specific type of the level they use for gastrocnemius recession, but also in other things like the post-operative rehab protocol, patient demographics like mean age and patient sex as well. And I think to a certain extent, you're always going to have some degree of heterogeneity in your systematic review. And that doesn't necessarily stop you from drawing any conclusions or performing a systematic review. Rather, you just have to be more careful with what you say in your conclusion. So like Manish has just said, we are unfortunately due to the heterogeneity, not we are able to say that, yes, the procedure results in increased strength. But because of the few studies and the low patient numbers, we unfortunately weren't able to do a subgroup analysis performing, uh, sorry, comparing each of the levels of gastrocnemius recession and seeing how that affects not only outcomes, but strength or range of motion. So yeah, I think whilst we would have loved to be able to do it, unfortunately, it just wasn't possible with the current evidence. Thank you very much. That is a great topic. And from what I've heard so far, I assumed you've changed your uh, your practice that once you've failed non-op treatment approach, you would rather go for proximal gastro. And what about the, the other operative or minimal invasive means we have? As Zaki has outlined that for a non-op or minimal invasive approach, you have glucocorticoid injections. In Germany, there's Always a big debate on whether PRP is, is useful on, on any insertional tendinopathia, if you want to call a plantar fasciitis. That. Does that have still any role in your non-op practice or your non-op protocols? So, Sebastian, what I would say, first of all, yes, I am actually a great fan of this operation and my personal experience is that it does work in most of the patients. In fact, just coincidentally, I was in clinic this morning and I had a patient 
who had plantar fasciitis for over one year and had tried everything under the sun. And she had a couple of steroid injections as well as laser, she says, shockwave therapy, physiotherapy, you name it, under the sun. And I did the gastronomist release for her two weeks back. And I saw her today. And she says that she's 80% better, at least 80% better, which is fantastic. You know, one year duration of symptoms and then come back two weeks after the operation, walking without any issues and 80% better. So that's great. We do this operation only as the last resort. You don't, don't want to jump into operation. You just go through the treatment ladder. And injections, there is a great whole load of injections. You, you name it, what sort of injections. So people inject everything, right from normal saline to nothing, to steroids, to amniotic, dried amniotic membrane, Botox, sugar, PRP, autologous blood. So what is the evidence? So based on what I have seen and what I have looked at, I think these are what I would say the key points. Number one, there is enough evidence in literature to show that steroid injections don't last for a long time. Most of the studies say that they last for up to three months or so. Number two, there is enough evidence in the literature to show that the PRP joint injection is superior to the steroid. There has been a great systematic review, level one evidence, and another one as well I'm aware of, and both of them show PRP is superior to steroid. Number three, not only that, there is also good evidence to show that if you don't inject any chemical and you just put normal saline or just do dry needling, that's also superior to steroid injection. Number four, Botox. Now, we know Botox doesn't work for a long time, but the evidence suggests that if you inject Botox for plantar fasciitis, then patients can have good outcome up to six months. And that's based on a very good study published in British Journal of Sports and Exercise Medicine, I think in 2016. However, these are all studies looking at shortcomings, so three months, six months, 12 months. There's one study, which is three-year follow-up, and they have four modalities they put into. So they did four arms. So a steroid injection, shockwave therapy, PRP injection, and prolotherapy. And at three years, they were all similar. So not much difference. So one has to ask the question that, okay, three months, six months, they are better. But what happens in the long run after any injection? So this is what I would summarize based on what I know about the injection. That was a very good overview, I believe. So to uh, summarize all this, in a couple of short sentences, how would you summarize your diagnostic and treatment algorithm for plantar fasciitis? For me, diagnosis is clinical. The patient describes classical history to start with the first step pain. So when they wake up first thing in the morning or when they are sitting and they start walking up, they have pain. Clinical assessment-wise, there is marked tenderness most of the times on the medial and sometimes the central band of attachment in the calcaneum. The most important thing then assessment is what we have already ta talked about, silver square test, and there are various ways. That's also we have touched. You can do it with one hand, two hands. You can do supine. You can do sitting. I actually like doing it in prone position. And then there is a lunch test as well. So it depends on how you do it. But anyway... What you're looking for is your gastronomius tight or not. I prefer shockwave therapy to start with, along with stretching exercises. And given 
Most of my patients would actually respond to shockwave therapy, but I tell them that, look, it is going to improve your symptoms at three months after the treatment, you might still have some residual pain, but you can live with that. And that I give it on my personal experience because I had bilateral plantar fasciitis. Steroid injection I only use when patient is actually really struggling with acute pain and they want some immediate pain relief. But I tell them that I'll do only this injection so that once the pain is better, you start stretching your calf muscles, gastronemius. And then there are patients which I see who have had chronic plantar fasciitis one year, two year, 10 years, and 15 years I've operated upon, then I think in those cases, if gastronemius is tight, I will perform proximal gastronemius release. One thing I will say, I don't know the answer. If all measures have failed and they don't have gastronemius tightness, I don't know then what to do with them. Would these be cases where you go for a fasciotomy? I don't know how. Uh, what is the experience in, in Germany, but in UK, most of the foot and ankle surgeons hate doing fasciotomy simply because there is you can potentially cause more harm. So I'm sure you're well aware of paper from Saxby where they say that 50 patients, 50 percent patients got worse after this operation. I hate thinking about fasciotomy. I would say I don't know. I'll say that that look in that small group of patients where there is no gastronomic tightness. In fact, some people say that even if there is no gastronomic tightness, even if they are neutral alignment, there is no harm increasing that dorsiflexion. So I would still, if I have the option, I would not choose fasciotomy. I would still do gastronomic release if the patient is desperate. Thank you very much. I think we have very similar experience. Mr. Ashad and Mr. Bahita, thank you so much for being with us on this podcast. It was a great honor talking to you. I think we have covered the wide range of plantar fasciitis. We were able to greatly show that proximal gastroc release is a great treatment option, not only with your systematic review, but also with your personal experience. Um, and then obviously there remains a small cohort of patients without a gastroc tightness that we, we still struggle with but your study definitely has helped to glance a light on how to best approach it. Again, thank you so much for being on our podcast and to our listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Ankle Surgery Update, Science Guiding Treatment, and we hope you turn in next time.